Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much more critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. Many times people ask me and share with me, they ask me questions about spirituality and religion, and then they share with me that their lives are enhanced and made happier by having a particular religious or spiritual practice. And it can be controversial for some who may be naysayers. That's what we're exploring today. And my first guest is Dr. Pamela Peake. She is a nationally renowned physician, scientist, expert, and thought leader in the fields of integrative and preventative medicine. She's a three-time New York Times bestselling author. Dr. Peake is a Pew Foundation scholar in nutrition and metabolism, assistant professor of medicine at the University of Maryland, and holds dual master's degrees in public health and policy, and is also a fellow of both the American College of Physicians and the American College of Sports Medicine. Dr. Peak is the founder of Peak Performance Center for Healthy Living and guides men and women in their quest to optimize their quality of lives as well as longevity. Welcome back, Dr. Pamela Peak. Happy to have you back in the house. Well, I'm not speaking of happy. <laughs> yeah, happy. It's all good. Yes, it is definitely all good. And I am really excited to to talk about the brain's experience or how the brain interprets spirituality, religion, divinity, numinosity. You know, what is going on in our minds when we are high on these kinds of experiences? Well, you know, it's interesting as we've been asking that question for a long time. We now have um, wonderful new tools um, to be able to literally peer into the brain and see what's going on when people are experiencing um, uh, spiritual euphoria, when uh, they are going to a place where um, they feel themselves great reward, happiness, um, and sort of transcendence. 
And obviously all of these things happen with meditation because um, prayer is nothing, you know, prayer is a form of meditation. So everything I'm talking about now then really applies to both worlds. So there was a really uh, fascinating study that was just published. And this study um, was done uh, by researchers at the University of uh, Utah Medical Center. And what they uh, decided to do was look at uh, people who uh, had a deep sense of uh, religiousness. And, of course, being in Utah, they chose Mormons. And they decided to uh, take people um, who really were practicing um, their uh, religion on a fairly routine basis and um, find out what's going on in their heads. Well, lo and behold, <laughs> uh, by using uh, functional magnetic uh, resonance imaging scans, um, they, they peered into the brains of 19 devout Mormons. Um, and one of the th what they found was absolutely uh, amazing. The pictures alone are worth um, a thousand words because many of these kinds of brain scans are very colorful as well. Um, and what they found were there were three parts of the brain that really lit up in a big way when uh, these individuals were actually stimulated to talk about um, their own experience in religion, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the first one was our pal. You know, I, I've talked about it before. The reward center in the brain lights yep. up. Yep. It just totally lights up. And um, it's it's like, you know, it's, it's better than having cupcakes in front of you. I mean, it just lights up to a beautiful place. And that means that what you have is an outflow of dopamine, the um, uh, pleasure uh, neurotransmitter. And wow, isn't that amazing? Now, what also lights up, which is quite fascinating, are areas of the brain, two areas of the brain, um, that have a lot to do with focus. In other words, you're really focusing on this experience. Your brain isn't like flying all over the place and you're just, you know, kind of riffing and letting it, you know, bounce around. Instead, you're very focused on something that's giving you tremendous reward. It's almost like um, I ask you to focus on a magnificent Malibu sunset or a sunrise. You're focusing on that. You're not thinking about world, you know, uh, war or something. No, you're focusing. The other part of the brain that kicks in at the same time is one that has to do with judgment, decision-making, and valuation, meaning that as you're looking at all of this, as you're experiencing this moment of happiness, reward, euphoria, it also places in the context all these decision making, these decisions that you make on a routine basis, um, and how they really unfold and work within the context of your baseline centered happiness and spirituality. So, for instance, if someone handed me you know, um, say someone walks up to me and says terrible things, you know, bigotry and, you know, racist, terrible comments. Um, immediately, I know that none of that, none of that um, is, is, is attached to me and, and my focus and where I'm coming from and my judgment and my valuation about my life. It just isn't. And so that's why having spirituality and that's why meditating and anchoring yourself 
mentally and spiritually is so incredibly integral to being able to live a life that segues off that. So you don't feel like a rudderless ship being kicked around by the waves of life. Does that make sense, Lisa? It makes perfect sense. And I want to just um, jump in here and, and, and ask you a question and, and I think highlight a point that what I hear you saying is that the same part of the brain, the, the, um, that, that spiritual euphoria is experienced in the pleasure center, which is all, the midbrain, right? It's a very old primal part of the brain that when that area lights up, it's actually the same part of the brain that when it is addicted to a substance or a behavior also lights up. But what I hear you saying that is sharply in contrast, that when using um, spiritual practice and whatever um, form or flavor that might be, that it's doing something that is in sharp contrast that what that, that then what is happening when we use substances and negative behaviors. Well, actually, that- it's, it's not that it's um, in sharp contrast. Quite frankly, um, what it really means, Lisa, is that it's the same part of the brain that lights up with addiction. It's exactly the same part. It's a nucleus accumbens. And um, so what I do... And, but wait, and Pam, I... hang on. Hang on. Let me just finish my thought here because this is important, the, the part that oh. is in contrast. And that is that in addiction, the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that is governing reason, accountability, right. morality, and decision-making is hijacked. So it's offline. And what I hear you saying in these spiritual practices, such as meditation or religious practice or prayer, that the um, prefrontal cortex, the decision-making parts of the brain are actually working in concert sort with, not separated from. Absolutely. And I would add the following. In addiction, there are two parts of the brain that are majorly hijacked. One is the reward center. The other one is the prefrontal cortex. And what happens when you do something like any kind of spiritual practice, and when I say practice, I mean I don't mean like once a year. I mean a practice, practice. right? It's, it's, it's part of your life, something that you talk about all the time, Lisa. What I'm saying is that, um, as you know, segueing off what you said, that you're actually strengthening the decision-making part of the brain, the brain CEO, so that your executive function is much higher, that your impulsivity um, then decreases as your focus and your ability to be able to stay on track increases, and that I would then argue that um, instead of uh, having your uh, reward center taken over by um, a substance abuse issue, um, et cetera, any kind of um, self-destructive addiction, that what you do is you switch it out for a spiritual practice, which then is life-enhancing instead of self-destructive. And then you see a reward center and a prefrontal cortex working in tandem. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes perfect sense. And I and I didn't really mean to jump in there and interrupt you, but because what you say is actually very, very important. I mean, what 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 has been discovered at the University of Utah Medical Center and the relationship between a brain that is high on religion versus a brain that is high on um, a, 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 a pharmaceutical substance is is really important. Yeah, I mean, what I'm saying is that when I you and I both work with um, populations of people who have all kinds of addictive issues. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, they cross pollinate, they're all over the place. All right. 
one of the things we like to do is to be able to convince people that by doing um, this uh, spiritual practice, that what they're actually able to do is is just literally sideline, get rid of this other self-destructive yeah. addictive practice and and instead substitute it with something that gives you a magnificent sense of euphoria that is natural, you know, better living through your own chemicals, right? And yes. so we're going to live through our own dopamine, our endorphins, our serotonin. We don't need morphine. We don't need, you know, a methamphetamine. We don't need cocaine. We don't need alcohol. We don't need any of that. What we do is we work with ourselves. And most people are so not convinced that what they have to offer naturally, you know, is going to really suffice. Well, I argue with you and say, forget that noise. I've got enough people I've worked with and enough studies to show that you could switch it out beautifully and be able to compete with that self-destructive addiction. We're going to go to a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Pamela Peake. To learn more about her work, her books, and her contribution to science, please visit www.drpeake.com. On Twitter, that handle is at Pam MD, and on Facebook, Pam MD. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back, and that is a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Before we come back to the show, I want to mention a podcast that I'm listening to and loving, the Success Journal podcast, which has practical tips to improve your life, enhance your career, make you money, and inspire you. Check out Success Journal podcast on iTunes and SuccessJournal.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about really the latest brain science and what scientists and medicine are discovering about your brain, my brain, our brains when we have spiritual practice, whether it is meditation, whether it is um, devotion to religion, whether it is prayer. And my guest today is Dr. Pamela Peake. She's been with us before. She is a fantastic friend of our show. And, and, and Pam Peake really discovered um, 
a lot of the testing that is being done at the universities. And that's what we're talking about. What happens to our brain, how we can make ourselves euphoric through spiritual practice. Okay. So I, I just love this topic and, and it segues so beautifully with all the work you do, Lisa, um, as well. And I, I really want to make an argument out there that everyone, I don't care who you are, what your issues are, um, what you need to do is to get in touch with a sense of spirituality. Um, you don't necessarily at all need to have um, a specific religion. Um, if you do, rock on. Um, you know, you have <laughs> multiple options out there. That's a beautiful thing. Um, but when you do, science shows that when you develop that regular practice, okay, and again, it could be your yoga practice, um, you can combine it with, um, you know, uh, a walking meditation. It doesn't matter. But if you do it on a routine basis, what you actually do is you light up and activate areas of the brain that help you live a stress-resilient life. That's the key. So you have focus. You have better executive function. You know, and at the same time, you also have the ability to be able to switch out self-destructive behaviors, no matter what they are, many of them are addictive, um, for something that, well, hey, get hooked on religion. What can I say? Um, get hooked on spirituality. Get hooked on connecting, connectivity out there. It's so important. How many people have had that spiritual experience just literally walking through nature it's all of those things. That's what you need. And the, the, the spiritual experience that we're talking about cultivating, it, 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 for some people it's in gardening. For some people it is in knitting. It's a way to, I think, be, become in that flow space where you are experiencing rapture and feeling perfectly passionate about what you're doing. You have a greater sense of awareness of being part of the world, not the center of it. A lot of right. things and, happen, right? Right. Well, transcendent is another word that's used. Yes. And that's obviously, you know, uh, plays off transcendental meditation. And, you know, there you can, you can experience transcendence no matter where you are. Um, and, you know, many times I look at this, you know, sense of spirituality as, you know, uh, peace, just a peacefulness, a calm, a place to be able to go. Um, to park your brain away from all the craziness out there. Um, and it's so important to understand that this is not something you do once a year or when you're feeling, you know, groovy at that moment. Um, instead, what this is, is something that should happen throughout the day. You know, mini chills, a moment to just sort of, you know, be instead of do. You need that <clears throat> throughout the day. This is especially true for people who have issues with anxiety, panic, um, obsessiveness, overworry, um, all of those things, if you let them get out of control, you know, will put you on a slippery slope toward feeling really out of control. You have rotten sleep. You can't really get a, a good sense of, of a peace that you deserve. You need to be peaceful. But, you know, most people don't realize it, it actually takes a little work to do that. You have to find a way, a practice that works for you. And there's so many options out there. You know, I turn a lot of people on to Headspace. 
you know, that, that meditation app, you know, it's a quick, you know, early way to be able to do this. I, you get people into learning mindfulness. There's a million different places where you can learn that same thing with TM, same thing with just turning yourself on to a more religious experience. However you define that again, it doesn't have to be some overly, you know, rigid rituals. It, you, you get to customize this for yourself. That's the beauty of this whole thing. And let's talk about the physical effects. Are the the positive byproducts of that sense of spiritual connection or or oneness? Because um, these scans, and I'm sure there was other testing done of blood and oh, saliva, God. you know, and decreases in cortisol, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Talk a bit about that. Well, you know, one of the things they notice it when the people um, who were being uh, who were participants in the study were actually being tested for physical effects that they had deepened breathing. You know, we always say that you're you're aiming for about six breaths a minute um, when you're looking at pranayama and you, many of these other forms of breathing that um, are so peaceful and calming to the rest of the mind and body. These people had very deepened breathing, um, number one. Number two, interestingly, um, they had what we call restful alertness, which means that they actually had an increased heart rate. That was the rapture, the euphoria, the... <gasps> But at the same time, they also had deepened breathing. Isn't that cool? It kind of, you know, involves many different parts of the parasympathetic and the autonomic um, nervous system um, in allowing all of you to um, be uh, participatory in this amazing experience of peace, calm, rapture, euphoria, back and forth. At the same time, stress hormone plummets. So you don't yes. want it off the ceiling when you are anxious, when you're, you know, bouncing off the rafters, you feel stressed out back and forth. Um, you know, your stress hormone, which is cortisol, um, is is way off. Instead, when you have peace, calm, more controlled breathing, all of that brings down the cortisol to a level that you could live with because we love cortisol. Cortisol is good. It keeps us on our toes. On the other hand, too much of a good thing is self-destructive. And what about um, decreased blood pressure? Well, you know, at the that same would be automatic, time, right? Absolutely. That's that's one of the things. When you decrease breathing, you do the same thing with your blood pressure. This is something that was um, studied many years ago by, as you know, Herbert Benson at the Harvard Mind Body Institute. When he began to study um, uh, Buddhist monks, and he found that their heart rate, their blood pressure came down precipitously as they got right into their practice. And, you know, of course, he was a cardiologist and they were giving out pills for high blood pressure like it was candy. <laughs> and then he proved he was the first one um, to prove on a, you know, with his beautiful and elegant exper uh, experiments, which were done in the 1970s and published in his wonderful book, The Relaxation Response. What he was able to show is, hey, who needs a pill when you could do this? It, uh, agreed. And yet so many of us are um, convenient spiritualists, you know, like when, when it's convenient, we'll, we'll, we'll dial in, we'll either we'll, we'll drop off to our place of or drop into our place of worship when we're scared. So the response is often um, in in response to something that has already happened, that we're asking for some source outside of ourselves to fix, but we're not willing to invest in this on a daily basis to help keep ourselves healthy and, and balanced and in check. Oh, there's no question. I mean, there's the holiday Catholics, you know, they right. show up at 
you know. Or the high holiday Jews, you know. Yeah, man. A lot of that (laughs) going on. And so, (laughs) you know, everyone's doing that. Or when they're terrified and something terrible happens, all of a sudden, you know, you've got road rash on your knees from all the praying. Um, You know, what's going on with that? Why not build a base? Why not build a base of spirituality? I'm telling you right now, you are a fool out there in, you know, listening land if you're not doing this. And do you have to be sitting there in some yoga pose for 28 hours? Of course not. You know, it could be a minute here, five minutes there. Turn it into a practice. And then there's lots of wiggle room. Sometimes we find ourselves just in beautiful introspection for 30 minutes. We don't even know the time went by. Other times we're just so happy to, you know, kind of crowbar in five minutes, but oh God, did that feel good. And it helped you set the the pace for the rest of the day. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And one more, one more chemical that I wanted to talk about was adrenaline and how our bodies are pumping adrenaline when we're in the state of stress along with cortisol and in this, this relaxation response that you're talking about and what has been studied, I'm uh, let's also mention that adrenaline rate dis- decreases. Well, there's no question. You know, um, norepinephrine or adrenaline is secreted at the same in, at the same place um, in the hypothalamus of the brain as cortisol. So cortisol and norepinephrine are like BFFs. Okay, so where, where you see one, you see the other. So clearly, you know, if you're stressed out of your brains, um, um, norepinephrine or adrenaline is coming along for the ride. And that's why your blood pressure picks up, your heart rate picks up, you know, and next thing you know, you've got the pounding headache and all the rest of it. Um, and then, of course, you're breathing really fast. And people have no idea that they're having what we call staccato breathing. They're <laughs> they're panting. Because yeah. it just they're so tied up. So when you have this wonderful daily practice of spirituality, of going inward, you know, meditation, etc., what you're able to do is actually get a win-win. Cortisol comes down, norepinephrine comes down, we're all good. And it all looks great. We are going to explore this theme more in the year ahead because I think that there is there is something to this that is so powerful and transformational that you've proven, Pam, in, in, in your discussion and the presentation of this article. We are out of time, and I want to send our listeners over to your website to learn more about the fabulous Dr. Pamela Peake. Please visit www.drpeake.com. On Twitter, that handle is at Pam Peak MD, and on Facebook, the page is Pam peak md we have got a dash for today but as always pam you are such a powerhouse of of knowledge wit wisdom and good fun well you know something hello it's it's it's, it takes a team right so (laughs) let's do it together we will we will we'll have you back here come the tunes we'll be right back and that is a promise Before we go to that break, I want to mention Plate Joy, the meal planner that makes healthy eating easy. Plate Joy uses 50 different data points to design custom meal plans that fit your health goals, your taste preferences, and your busy schedule. Instead of getting unhealthy or expensive takeout, cook delicious, healthy recipes without any of the planning. You can even try it for 10 days for free. Visit platejoy.com and enter the code HAPPINESS to save $10 on your membership. Once again, that's platejoy.com and use the code HAPPINESS to save. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. 
Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're continuing the conversation about spiritual euphoria, feeling the spirit. And my next guest actually participated in or is an active participant in the Religious Brain Project, Dr. Jeffrey Anderson, MD. PhD is a board-certified doctor in neuroradiology and diagnostic radiology and directs the FMRI Neurosurgical Mapping Service and is principal investigator for the Utah Functional Neuroimaging Laboratory. Dr. Anderson's lab studies brain networks using functional images techniques such as fMRI, diffusion tensor imaging, and magnetic... Oh, I'm going to mess this one up, Dr. Anderson. Say it for me. Um, uh, Magnetoencephalography. Phew, that is a mouthful. Dr. Anderson also has particular interests in autism, multiple sclerosis, vision research, and dementia. Welcome, Dr. Anderson. Thanks for joining us. Delighted to be with you. Oh, delighted to have you. So we're carrying on the discussion about the article that was written, and that's how we found our way to you, about um, This Is Your Brain on God. Talk a little bit about the actual study. Well, what we wanted to understand is how does the brain participate in religious experience and spiritual feelings? So we studied a group of young, devout Mormons, and we're able to conduct experiments all inside of an MRI scanner, where over the course of about an hour, we showed them religious stimuli that were audiovisual stimuli, uh, uh, passages from religious leaders, scriptural quotations, periods of prayer. And through the course of this, we were able to, to measure what happens in the brain when somebody has a spiritual or religious feeling. And what are those feelings? Well, we were a little bit nervous when we started the experiment that we'd be able to see anything. Uh, it's a you know, it's a private experience. A lot of people feel like it might be difficult to reproduce inside of a laboratory. And to our surprise, uh, there, there were very successful uh, spiritual feelings that were evoked according to our participants. Many of them were in tears at the end of the scan. 
And they reported that these types of spiritual feelings they had during the experiment were very similar to what they would have during private religious practice or a worship service. And in fact, the brain lights up similarly to that of somebody who would be taking drugs. What we found was that one of the, a number of areas were reproducibly activated when somebody was reporting having spiritual feelings. And perhaps the most interesting area was an area of the brain that's been termed the brain's reward circuit, um, an area called the nucleus accumbens that uh, is involved in dopamine release in, and in many other contexts is associated with reward, including, as you mentioned, when somebody is using something like cocaine or methamphetamines, but also during romantic love, during uh, uh, social reward processing, um, and and other reward-inducing stimuli. I remember uh, watching a TED Talk many years ago that was given by uh, Dr. Helen Fisher, and she showed two brain scans, the brain um, newly in love, and the brain on cocaine, and that they looked very similarly. So what I think I hear you saying is the same would hold true with this study. Absolutely. And why is that so important for us to know? Well, it it recasts spiritual experiences in terms of brain circuits and mechanisms that we already know a lot about. When you, when you, Think about religion and spiritual experience in terms of canonical reward pathways. Well, it, it brings up a lot of issues, things like classical conditioning, things like um, how uh, our spiritual and religious practice relates to other types of reward inducing experiences. You know, and it's curious that you studied Mormons. I mean, in Utah really has a large concentration of practicing Mormons, but why Mormons in particular as, as well, part of the study? There, there are a couple of reasons. So first of all, we were looking for a charismatic religious practice where spiritual euphoria or, or, or joy is a prominent part of the religious experience. And Even more than that, we were looking for a group of individuals that could do one thing, and that was to identify in themselves when they were having a spiritual and religious experience and recognize that. And all of our participants had had served um, one and a half to two year missions where that was one of their primary activities every day was to recognize when they or others were having spiritual experiences And so it was a group of individuals that was relatively young, healthy, without a lot of other uh, medical problems that could do exactly what we were asking them to do, which was to recognize in themselves what they were feeling. I think you touch upon something really important. You know, people will use the phrase, I'm having a spiritual experience, or it was a spiritual experience. And what this study um, does as as part of it is define what those sensations are and what happens to us internally. Talk a little bit about the description of a spiritual experience, that that place of, I guess, transcendency or unification. One of the, the things that we did to, to each participant was have a debriefing after where we talked about specific words, their words, how they would describe feelings that they had. And, and there were a lot of common 
phrases, uh, a sense of peace, a sense of joy, euphoria, um, happiness. Uh, uh, there's some, some phrases that are common among Mormon uh, leaders in addresses like burning in the bosom or uh, a, a feeling the spirit. And, and those types of phrases were good descriptions for what they described their feelings were like. In in my own experience, when I, I've had you know spiritual peak moments, it's they've been there's been a profound sense of contentment or well being or that all is right with the world. Is that also part of what you've heard? Absolutely, yeah, that would be very consistent with what our study participants described. And, uh, you know, for some of our listeners who might not have re a religious practice, but may have a spiritual practice where they glean the same kinds of sensations, are there any um, plans to include those types of people in the study? We would love to. As we've talked to people about the study, um, people who aren't religious have often expressed the idea that if I were hiking in nature or doing some other activity that is personally deeply meaningful to me, I suspect I would have similar types of feelings in the brain, and, and, and we think that's, that's very likely. Um, it would be interesting to also look at the differences. So what, one of the things that occurred to us was that many of these feelings that people have, um, there's only so many circuits in the brain that, that process reward, happiness. There's a lot of similarity in, um, across different stimuli, and it may be that somebody who has a more maladaptive religious experience, for example, somebody contemplating religious violence, may have similar types of feelings. It might feel the same way in the brain as someone who is having a, a more conventionally positive spiritual experience. And looking for differences in how the brain processes these types of feelings may be really interesting because we really know so little. It's astonishing how understudied the whole idea of religious neuroscience is. Well, I think you say something really important, that, that the brain doesn't recognize the difference. And when the nucleus accumbens is activated, when this pleasure center is activated, isn't the prefrontal cortex somewhat offline at that point? So the part of the brain that's governing reason and accountability is taken over? Or is that not really no, what happens? Not, actually, no. In addition to the reward center, that wasn't the only area that we saw activated. There were half a dozen other areas of the brain, including the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and including areas in the medial prefrontal cortex, areas that in other contexts are associated with moral reasoning and um, introspection. Um, there were um, areas of the brain that are involved in social and empathic function um, that actually were activated in, more in some subjects than others, depending on their moral values. So there's this whole network of brain regions that seem to come online um, that processes everything from focused attention to, to uh, introspective thought, in addition to reward. And it's probably the combination of all those re regions that produces uh, a spiritual experience that has the depth and complexity that, that's more than just getting a high or a hit from a, from a drug, but it has these other components to it as well. Well, I think this is what makes this study so special is because 
what you're saying is that you know the the spiritual or religious experience not only gives you that sense of euphoria but is also activating all these other parts of the brain in consort which makes it a solid peak experience that one can train for yes that's right and that is um I think that's pretty cool. We're going to go to a break, and when we come back, we're going to carry on the discussion with Dr. Jeffrey Anderson about spiritual euphoria. This is your brain on God. To learn more, please visit www.religiousbrainproject.com. On Twitter, you can connect up at U of U Health, and on Facebook, U of U Health. Here come those tunes. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappyatharvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because it's kind, it's free, it's legal, it's available 24-7, and we're talking about your brain on God with Dr. Jeffrey Anderson from the University of Utah. Welcome back. Let's talk more about this. Let's talk about... uh, uh, addicted to religion. Yes. Uh, well, we often use the phrase addiction when we're talking about something harmful or, or maladaptive. Um, so, for example, we don't often use the phrase addiction when we're talking about a romantic partner. But nevertheless, a lot of the same physiology is involved. The brain may see many of these things in similar ways. Let's talk about, let's talk a little bit about the other um chemicals that are released in our brains when we have these peak moments because you talked about dopamine yes but, but there are others that, that same area of the brain the you know the ventral striatum is associated with opioids endogenous opioids with serotonin with um uh, also um a whole range of other neurochemical responses that are um, a little bit difficult to tease out. So we don't know how much these feelings are associated with dopamine or, or whether it's more related to um, 
you know, these other types of neurochemical experiences. Um, in the study, you discovered that people who were having these experiences while in the scan had an increase in some of their other bodily responses, right? That so there was a quickening of the heartbeat. Um, talk That's a little right. bit about that, which is in opposition to what happens, let's say, when people are meditating. That's true. We we did see elevated heart rate, slower, deeper breaths, and um, you know, combined together, that that tells us that this is a you know a, an elevating response. This is a, a type of response that you see when somebody is um, paying attention to something more. Um, intensely, um, and there there are a number of differences from what you might experience during a mindfulness practice session, and perhaps that's one of the differences between Eastern and Western types of religious experiences. We've also scanned a number of Zen practitioners, people with tens of thousands of hours of meditative experiences, Zen roshis, and uh, and. We, we we did see some differences. We uh, you know there there are different studies, but but just in as people describe contemplative practice compared to Western uh, charismatic religious practice, there there are both similarities and differences. People in both cases describe a sense of of love, peace, contentment, but. One of them is more focused on language. Um, in, in the West, typically, prayer is associated with, with more language. There's also differences in, in this sense of, of peak uh, spiritual excitement. When we uh, studied our Mormon practitioners, we actually had them push a button during one of our experiments when they were feeling some kind of peak religious experience. And we actually could see a peak in activity in the brain's reward circuit one to three seconds before they push the button. So we can have these paroxysmal, um, very focused in time experiences that people describe as, as meaningful and important. And, and we don't know to the extent to which those types of time-locked responses are also present during meditative or contemplative practices. Are there plans to work with other religious groups or other pra practitioners of other forms of spiritual practice? I think we would love to do that. You know, there are there are, the similarities and differences across faith traditions would be really important. As we as we were even studying our own participants, we found that that as we compared the brain responses to a whole battery of questionnaires that participants filled out before the scan, that differences in the spiritual response across individuals were informative with respect to moral values. Um, the activity in the insula, for example, was uh, associated with whether somebody valued more a sense of, of in-group loyalty versus uh, versus uh, sanctity or purity in terms of their, their moral value hierarchy. And so we expect that, that there would be some differences across religious and cultural groups that, that might be very meaningful for understanding how we process morality. We, we found that, that individuals in our study showed differences from person to person in 
specifically which brain regions were involved during a spiritual response. And those differences were related to how people answered questionnaires uh, related to moral values. For example, people who may value more sanctity or purity versus in-group loyalty versus uh, harm versus care towards others. Those types of, of values were different in people who had more activity in the, in the insula during a spiritual response. So that we have every reason to believe that there will be differences across faith traditions, across cultural groups, in how types of spiritual experiences might be manifest, what the specific combination is of this library of brain responses that are making up religion. What does the insula do? In term, in, in terms well, of the, brain insula, the insula is one of the most complex regions of the whole brain. It, it's, it's involved in, in a great deal, but some of the, the functions that are attributed to the insula include uh, com combining different sensory experiences into one more unified concept, uh, social empathy, in something called interoception, which is a, a, a sensation or appreciation of bodily functions or, or experiences. Um, it's also involved in very complex regulation of attention. So, so it becomes a little bit... Uh, mysterious because some of our our highest level function is is registered in the insula wow well this more questions keep coming to mind i think you know one of the things i also think about uh, as you talk about this study is what is the relationship to um spiritual experience or religious experience and our whole health you know the the, the sort of totality of our well-being yeah, there, there are a number of studies in the literature about health benefits of some type of spiritual and religious practice, but that's also controversial. Just as, as we don't have a, a full understanding yet of the extent to which religious experience uh, generates pro-social feelings in society and culture. Those are, those are important open questions. Well, I know from my hugely, hugely important questions, and I know from my own experience, and then in working with clients, that the the the, the, the sensation of being part of something that is larger than oneself is a huge part of this. Yes, there's there's uh, important social implications, and another dimension of that is how we relate to authorities. So. It was an opportunity during this study to, to actually look at how we respond to messages from our leaders and can we see differences in the brain and, and how that's processed. So in one experiment, we showed quotations. These were religious-themed quotations from either Mormon church leaders or from other denominational Christian church leaders like Pope Francis or Billy Graham. And we, we did the experiment where all the quotations were actually from C.S. Lewis, and we randomly assigned them to one or the other group. And <laughs> our participants reported that, that quotations that they thought were from their own leaders were more spiritually meaningful, were evoked greater spiritual stimuli, and had deeper spiritual content. And when we looked in the brain at where those differences were, um, we found that each of our quotations had a, a little photograph of, of the religious leader it was attributed or misattributed to. And 
that people scrutinize the faces of the out-group leaders much more than the in-group leaders. And there was less activation when they were reading the quotations in an area of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which processes reasoning and analytical thought when they were looking at quotations from their own leaders, Mm. Um, whereas there was more scrutiny, more uh, uh, analytical type brain pattern for when they were reading quotations from out-group leaders. Well, I want to thank you for joining me on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, and I invite you to come back because there is so much more I want to talk about with you. I have so many questions, and (laughs) I think this is really quite a a frontier. So religious neuroscience is where it's at. I mean, it's on, because I think we're discovering so so much powerful information about a region that is invisible to us. These questions are answerable. And, and the questions are important. And I appreciate you having the time to talk to me. Oh, I, I'm going to make some more time to learn more about the work of Dr. Jeffrey Anderson. Please visit TheReligiousBrainProject.com. On Twitter, you can connect up at U of U Health. And on Facebook, U of U Health. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Pamela Peek and Dr. Jeffrey Anderson, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.